0: All right. Thank you, Catherine. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. I, I I think it's it's not officially summer, but it kind of feels like it's officially summer, doesn't it? For many of us, our kids got finished school this last week. I know that I guess there's a few who are in finals week this week. But so it kind of feels like summer. Our, we sent our youth off to Hume Lake today. So they went up. I think we sent around 60 people up there today. So that feels like summer. So welcome to summer. Forget about the calendar. It feels like it. So it's good. And for us here in the summer, we are going through a series called the Ten Commandments. And uh, we're calling it the path of life. Because for us, the Ten Commandments, we don't want them to be about, hey, follow these things So, that you can somehow discover life. But we want to be people who are rooted in our life in Christ. And the Ten Commandments kind of give us the path of life, meaning, what does it look like in the kingdom of God? And so that's what we're going to be unpacking each week throughout the summer. Now, today we're going to go through the first two commands. And uh, the first two commands kind of deal with who God is and other gods. But to get us started, we're going to start with a little activity here, okay? A little, a little game that you can play right there where you're sitting. So uh, get ready, and, and here's the title of the game. You ready for it? Roxanne, put that up there. There we go. We're going to give you the name, a name of something, and you have to decide, is this a false god in the Bible, or is this the name of a death metal band, okay? So, so that's where we're going. So here's how we'll go. Here's the first one. So this is the first one. Go ahead to the next slide there. All right. Ashtoreth is this a false god or or you, you got to keep score on your own like you got right there that you're keeping score for yourself Okay, the answer Here we go next Go ahead. Go to the next slide. Okay, so false god. You got it. You got it Okay, you're keeping score on your own. We're gonna see who can get the most okay next one. Let's get the next uh, There you go Belphegor <laughs> Could be both right all right put your vote in okay here we go and the answer death metal band Bonus points to anyone who knows a song by them. Okay, next. <laughs> Molek. Oh, we got some people who think they've got it. Okay, the answer is false god. Okay, okay, we had some good ones. Next. Marduk. Marduk. My favorite song by Marduk is there. Okay, next. The answer, oh, it's false god. You guys just stopped playing. Did you stop playing? <laughs> okay, last one. Here we go. Nahama. <laughs> just, I mean, that's great, right? Put your vote in, and the answer, death metal band. Okay, so give yourselves a hand if you scored all of them, if you got all five right. No one did? Okay, I'll give you a hand for playing, all right. <laughs> so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when we read through scripture and we hear all these crazy names and we see things like this, we think, okay, what kind of world do they live in? Because if we try to update this and and make it in modern day, we probably wouldn't come up with as many kind of crazy names and things like that of what do people worship. And I think sometimes when we get to these first commands, it's hard to really relate because we say, well, what, I mean, we're not living in a world necessarily with a lot of gods. Now, some of you maybe are familiar with others, but so how does this relate to us? That's what we really want to understand today. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 20. And you can always turn on your Bibles if you use a digital, digital version, whichever works best for you. Now, as we get started here today, let's just remember just a couple things. The Ten Commandments are part of the whole Bible. So we don't ever want to pull apart and, and piece together certain things and understand it in isolation. When we understand and when we try to understand things in isolation, we misunderstand them. So when we know the whole narrative, we know that this is part of a narrative where God is trying to explain to the nation of Israel, hey, you are my people. I love you for who you are because based on my covenant relationship with you and your father Abraham, one of your ancestors, I've called you to be a nation to represent my name. Now when it gets to this part of the narrative, the Ten Commandments were to a people who didn't know who this God was, and we we know by the name of Yahweh, the Creator God, the God over all that's in the Bible, the God of the Bible, and we look at this, and the Israelites are coming out of hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt, and they didn't know Yahweh. So naturally, he said, hey, represent me to the nations. Well, they would say, well, who are you? What are your ways? So that's in this context. Now, the first four of what we call the Ten Commandments relate to our vertical relationship with God, they're all how we relate to Yahweh as the Creator, how we relate to Yahweh as King. And then the final six commands are how we relate to one another based on how we relate to Yahweh. So again, these are not meant to be in isolation. They're not supposed to be, well, you know, I follow numbers two, five, and six pretty well, you know, or whatever. This This is a total package, this is the Constitution for the nation of Israel and what it meant to be in the kingdom of God, so that's what we're looking at here today. So let's jump in as uh, we in, started off here in Exodus chapter twenty. We're going to pick it up in verse two. God says, "I am the Lord your God." And any time we get in Scripture where you have Lord, and most of your Bibles will translate uh, Lord in all uppercase. That is the name Yahweh and the original translation. So, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, the very first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, when we think of that, some of us might think, okay, this has to do with ordering our priorities in life. Because most of us probably don't have other gods who are competing with our own faith. Now, some of you from different faith backgrounds, maybe you do. But most people would say, well, no, I, I don't, there's not many other gods in my life. And so often we'll hear, in church, we'll often hear people translate this or update it to say, well, what are the other things that kind of become gods to you? Like maybe money, fame, fortune, even your family or your status, all of that. Now, I don't think that's what this verse is actually asking us to do. I do think it's important that we have priorities in life. I think it's important that we prioritize things but this isn't saying have no other gods before me in the sense of make sure all other gods are behind me that's not the context the context here this word before me in hebrew would be it's an idiom to be translated don't have anything else in my presence it's not that they're behind yahweh it's they don't they're not in the presence of yahweh at all so when he says have no other gods before me Don't have them behind me or around me or anywhere in your life. You are fully and wholly mine, and I am yours. And so this is not about having your life in the right order. It's not about, okay, God, marriage, kids, work. Now, is that a good order? I think it's a great order. That's not what this is saying. It's saying your life is fully dependent on your relationship with Yahweh. That's what gives you definition. That's what matters. That's where you find your security, your acceptance, your significance is in your life with Yahweh, and it's nothing else. So the priorities don't matter. You don't, it's not prioritizing your life right, except for the one priority, of there will be no other gods but Yahweh. The only thing that defines you is your life in the kingdom of Yahweh. Now, in that, you might think, okay, so then, do my priorities in life matter at all? Then it doesn't matter. I, I, can have, I can have work in front of my marriage, and work can be in front of my kids. Like, if it doesn't matter, right? Of course, that's not what it means here. Because, the, again, this is relating to Yahweh's relationship. And remember, this is to a group of people who are coming out of Egypt who had one of the most complicated pantheons of gods of all the ancient world. Very complicated and the number of gods that they worshipped. You say none of those, none of those things, and places you go for significance matter. So how does that relate to us then? What does that mean? How should we live? Here's one thing I want you to think about. If there are no other gods in our life, if our lives are wholly rooted in our identity in the kingdom of Yahweh, that means how we conduct our marriage, our parenting, how we interact with our neighbors, How we interact as an employer or an employee is all rooted in a life in the kingdom of Yahweh. We don't have to prioritize because we are fully living in this kingdom. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 3. I have it up on the screen for you. Verse uh, 23. Whatever you do, work at it with your whole being for the Lord and not for men. Because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So the modern interpretation of this is you don't, ha- it's not about prioritizing and saying, okay, when I'm at work, I'm all here. It's no, whatever you do, if you're in the life of the kingdom of Yahweh, that's what influ- that is your influence. That is what affects you. That is what drives everything. In fact, the very first command in scripture, God created humans and he said, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He said, Work participate in your work, but do it with me. Be a part of the creative uh, work of cultivating and caring for things and, and creating. And all of this is part of your partnership because you are in the kingdom of Yahweh. You are mine. You represent me. So everything you do represents the kingdom of Yahweh. You tracking with me on that? So we don't have to say, well, what's my priorities now? That's a practical counseling thing, of course. If your life is out of whack, but when we are fully in the kingdom of Yahweh, we know, oh, it's important how I love my wife. It's important how I love my kids and all of those things. But there's no other gods in the presence of Yahweh is how this starts. Now let's go to the next command. The next command says this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or earth below or in the water under the earth. So let's just stop right there. So this command, how many of you struggle with this one? (laughs) Okay, no one one raised their hand. They're like, what? Yeah, so when you think of it, literally how many of you struggle making idols? Probably not many of us, right? Not many of us say, like, you know, I knew yesterday when I was in my garage and I made an image uh, of a golden calf. Like, I I kind of felt like something was off when I was doing that. So this is one of those that maybe some of us say, well, I've never... I've never made an idol in the likeness of anything. And it's interesting that, again, this command was given. And after this section of scripture, we see the Israelites make golden calves. Literally, when Moses goes away, they're like, we don't know what to do. Where's this Moses guy? Where's he been? You know what we need? Hey, Aaron, can you make some, can you make the God for us who, who led us out? And he made golden calves and said, here's the God who led you out of Egypt. And they went, hmm, okay, <laughs> let's worship those. But it's, again, it's, beyond, it's bigger than that. See, in the ancient world, this idea of making graven images, making idols to represent a god, it became the manifestation of that god. So the idol, the very thing they would carve out, the very thing that they would make, then to them took on the, not just the appearance of that god, but they felt like the god's presence literally dwelled within those idols. So then they would go to those idols, and those idols became kind of like good luck charms. Or sometimes they would would bring gifts to the idols. Sometimes they would manipulate the idols. Sometimes in your worship of the idol, you would say, hey, if you don't bring a harvest this year, I'm going to melt you in the fire. So that was the relationship that people had in the ancient Near East with the idols they created. It became very transactional, and that was the heart of the problem is as soon as they made an image of these things, that became something that they would try to manipulate, persuade, or to get to somehow be on their side, which is so contrary to the character and nature of who Yahweh is. Yahweh is the one who pursued a relationship with his people, who called and made us his own, who says, I will sustain you and make you into something wholly new. I am all you need. You don't have to persuade me. In fact, you can't because I know what I'm doing, and I'm with you. I'm fully for you. But the idols became this transactional relationship. Now, here's some interesting things. We know the story, some of you know of the story of the golden calves. I just mentioned it to you. But even to this day, we found idols under the tunnels of ancient Israel. These dated to this uh, first temple period. So think of, like, anywhere between in the late 500s to 700s B.C., When you're having these, these are the heart of the nation of Israel, when prophets are coming and saying, quit wandering from God, we need to follow him, throw away your idols, they have found idols in these tunnels underneath the old city of Jerusalem, what we call the city of David, so that the idols still existed, there's these little idols for fertility, uh, that was the most popular one that you'd find under there. And, and, and so people were still to that day hiding and saying, we need, I want fertility. So they'd take these idols and they would try to uh, ask them to give them favor or whatever it would be. So it's something that they struggled with for so many years. Right in the face of Yahweh. Now, so God says, hey, don't make these idols. Because one, you could never make anything in my image. And two, my relationship with you is not to be manipulated. Now, there's another side note that's very interesting, too. There is a place in the Bible where something is made in the image of God. In fact, a couple places. In the image of God, that the, something that was made in the likeness of God is you and me. The very beginning, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So that which will represent us is humans, which is a really crazy thing, but that's the image that was made. Now then we find in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul's writing about Jesus, and he says the Son, Jesus, is the exact image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So if you want to know what God is like, you're not going to find out in some idols that we make, physically make, but it's in the person of Jesus, and it should be in the persons of you and in me the image of God that rests upon us to represent God's ways throughout the earth so it's kind of interesting that the one place where things are made in his image God did it now let's move on with that verse and understand it and apply it for us today so don't make anything in 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 the likeness of heaven and earth or uh, water under the earth so a lot of us don't do that right But what are the things that maybe we do use as symbols? What are the things that take on meaning? That sometimes replace the person for whom they're supposed to represent? For example, even a cross. We love the cross. The cross is a wonderful symbol, I believe, even though it's about crucifixion of Jesus, it's also about how God overcame death. How he turned things around how many of us sometimes see the cross as actually has the power? It's not what happened on the cross. I mean, we even look in popular movies and fiction. The cross is the the weapon against vampires, right? It's the cross. If you see a vampire, you have to have a cross. That will save you. And a mirror, I think, something like that. So, but why? Because we have taken a symbol that represented what our God did and gave it extra meaning. As if the symbol itself has the power. The symbol itself does not have the power. Now, is it? I, do I like the cross? I love the cross. I think it's a great reminder. I think it brings us into, it reminds us of what Christ has done. Some of you have tattoos of crosses or wear the necklaces of crosses. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you say, oh, I don't have my cross. God's not with me. That's when we need to say, oh, am I making something Am I making an image or an idol to replace who Yahweh really is? That was one problem with it. Now let's go on and see what else they did. Or what happens as it goes on from here. You shall not worship them or serve them. So what happens is they were making these idols and serving them. Could you imagine if you're the creator God and they make an image and say, let's serve this. Do you know how offensive that probably was when they made the golden calves? Have you ever thought about that? Like, God just led you out of Egypt, and they literally said, oh, look, let's make golden calves. These are your gods. If I was God, I would have just said, I'm starting over right now. And those people would have been destroyed. In fact, there's times when God told Moses that. He said, I've had enough of these stubborn people. I'm going to get rid of them, and Moses, you and I are going to start something new. And Moses has this debate with God. It says, no, no, Lord. You're the one who chose them. But why does God, why is he patient? Let's go on. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Think of that. Does that sound kind of petty to you? A jealous God? This is not a kind of like a junior high crush jealousy. This is not an immature jealousy. This is not even a manipulative jealousy. This is our God saying, if you knew the depth of my love for you, if you knew the depth of what I am going to do for you, if you knew the depth of my patience for you, you would know how desperately I want to be in relationship with you, in community with you. If you knew that I knew what was best for you, you understood that? I'm a jealous, God, because I have what is best for you on my mind. It's as a parent with their kids. It's an, I just, I desperately want you to trust me as your parent. I desperately want you to trust that I love you more than anything else. That's what this means here that's jealous, God, because I want what's best for you. I know you more than you know yourself. But now here's how it takes a turn. Check this out. Because it's been kind of nice right now, right? Inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. How's that sound? (laughs) Does it kind of seem like, wait, this just took a turn, Lord. I get it. You have no other gods. I get it that you, that you are jealous for me in, in a loving kind of way. But now what? You're inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the third and fourth generation? Doesn't that sound kind of harsh? Maybe just to me? Maybe it's summer? Is it summer? Okay, let's wake up a little. Now oh, let's just move on. Okay. No, <laughs> kidding. Let's understand this. So let's understand this. What does this mean? Does this mean that God is going to punish me because of my great-grandfather? Is he going to inflict punishment on my life because of other people and what they've done? That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. What does this really mean? I wanted to share a couple other verses with you. Again, we never want, and I actually don't have these on the screen for you, but we never want to read Scripture in a vacuum. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 16. God says this, "Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Now you say, wait, put to death. This is in the context of a greater. This is kind of holding you accountable for following or turning away from God. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Okay, we're good. We're good, all right? Says it again in Leviticus 26 verses 40 through42. It uh, says it again, uh, something similar to that in Jeremiah chapter 32, that God is not going to hold us accountable, not going to punish you for the, what has happened generations before. So what does this mean? And there's a few things that we want to know. First thing is this. Notice what he says in, in this Exodus verse. Inflicting the punishment on those who what? Who hate so what it is is God is holding accountable every generation who goes against him. That and he's talking to essentially the first generation here. And typically in biblically we see three three and four generations. That's because in your lifetime generally three or four generations are alive at the same time, okay? So that's what it's referring to. Hey, don't think that 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 just because okay, we as the fathers are setting the tone, don't think that we're still not holding your kids accountable to the same stuff. And there's a little bit here, I believe, about generational sin. Not saying that because I have sins in my life, my kids will for sure have those, or my grandkids, but it's saying often what we do, we pass down from one generation to another. A great example is is think of racism. If you take two little kids from different ethnicities and put them in a room together and have them play, almost every time they will. They're going to enjoy each other. They're going to play because they're kids. But things like racism and, and classism and all that stuff, those are caught, those are taught. Those are things they hear from their parents. They hear from one generation to the next, and they pass it down. So what God's saying here is, hey, listen, the generations of people who hate me, who go against me, I'm going to hold you accountable. So there's seriousness to this every generation has seriousness to it but also hey let's be aware of generational issues there's this corporate identity that we want to be aware of and we want to break the cycle of certain things and i think racism is a great example that generations maybe had that and, and for some intentionally some unintentionally and that's a cycle that has been broken and is being broken and many families to this day so he's saying third and fourth generations. Those who are alive, just know, I'm going to hold you accountable to the life you live. Now, let me take you to another, and the rest of that verse, verse 6 says this, but I'm showing favor to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commands. So what we find is, God, this is an intentional contrast here, of the couple generations, but thousands, I'll be faithful forever. That's a biblical way of saying it. So let's look at one other verse. Verse, uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses five and six. I want you to look there. I have it on the screen or you can turn there. Again, how do we understand who our God is? Let's take a bigger look. You always have to look at other verses. This is another case when Moses is back on the mountain and Moses said, God, I wanna see who you are. I wanna know who you are. And this is the the most quoted verse in the Bible or most referenced verse in the Bible by other parts of scripture. God passes before Moses, and he says this, You want to know who I am? The Lord, the Lord. This is Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love here is the Hebrew word chesed, which is kind of grace or mercy. I'm keeping my steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So when we want to know the character of God, does this sound like the God who's, who's unfair? Because if I just read Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, sometimes it sounds a little harsh. But I read this. Now the rest of this is he repeats it and says, but I will hold each generation accountable for their sins that they're committing. But know that who I am at my core is I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands of generations forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin so here we see that grace is shown to superabound does god have justice does he hold us accountable yes does he take this serious are the 10 commandments in the sense of not just these 10 commands but is life in the kingdom of god a serious thing does he want us to represent him well the answer is yes there's seriousness to it. But we also, also have to know we have a God who understands, who will walk with us, who's gracious, who will for, forgive to the thousands and thousands of generations of those who walk with him. So what does this mean? How do we relate today? There's a lot of context in these first couple, but what are the things we need to learn? I have a couple questions for you. The first one is this. Is your identity rooted in who you are as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Kingdom of the Lord. Is your identity rooted in this? See, the first command is all about that. Do you trust that you are in the kingdom of Yahweh? Is that enough for you? Or are there other things in your life? Is your identity rooted in being a good father or a husband or your work? Is it in your position and how you've, your education? What is it that you actually, when you evaluate your life, say these are the things that actually mean more to me than my citizen, as, than being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? So, what is it for you? Is your identity rooted in that? And if you're rooted in the citizen, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that orders and changes everything about how you live. Okay, that's number one second one is this. Second question for us today is this. Do you trust that your king is good and has your best interests in mind? So if your identity is rooted in this kingdom of heaven, do you trust that the king of this kingdom is good? Do you trust that he has your best interests in mind? Do you trust that you don't have to have any other idols or images or anything competing for his attention? Do you trust that when he says, follow my ways and live my ways, that that will be enough? Or do you think, well, ah, I can't fully trust you. And I would say that most of us probably struggle with this and actually struggle with number two, that command number two more than almost anything, one and two. Other things get in our way because ultimately we have a hard time trusting that God is good and has our best interests in mind. It's hard. If you look at how you interact with others, do you trust that if you step out in forgiveness that he has your best interests in mind? Do you trust that if you love your spouse the way he's calling you to love your spouse, that that's in your best interest? even if you've been trying to train him for years and he can't get it figured out. <laughs> you trust that the way you lead your business, if you do it as if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and you treat your employees as if they're made in the image of God, that that's actually for your good as well as theirs. This is a hard one. Do you trust even in that we have a jealous God who wants you to be fully his? Do you trust that even when he holds us accountable in the areas of our life when we drift away, that that is for our good? I love the quote in the book, The Lion and Witch in the Wardrobe, which I didn't read until I was in my 20s. So, you know, I wasn't a great student growing up. It meant so much more to me when I first read it, but there's a famous line in there when they're introduced to Aslan, who's this lion, and the kids didn't know who Aslan was. They heard about him. And they said, what a big lion, and they asked this question to the beaver. If you don't know the books, this sounds ridiculous. So they asked a question to the beaver and, <laughs> and said, who's Aslan? Is Aslan good or is he safe? And the beaver said, is he safe? no, Aslan's not safe, but he's good. I love that line because I believe that some of us think because God is good that we, our lives don't matter at all, that he doesn't care about the sin in our lives, that he doesn't care about our ways of wandering or misrepresent him, that we think, well, he's good, and we forget that he's fierce. And in the sense of, is he safe that he doesn't care about anything? No. This matters to him. He's called us to be his people. He's called us to lay down those idols and to get all the other gods out of his presence. And he is good, but he is fierce. And that is for our good. We're going to end our time, and uh, we're actually going to have communion today. But before we get to communion, I'm going to invite the band up. And I want to just, before we go into communion, take a song to just reflect and to examine our hearts a little bit and to say, okay, I don't often think of myself of having other gods in the presence of Yahweh. I don't often think of myself as creating idols and images. But what are the things in your life where you don't trust your king, where you don't believe that he is good, when you're not living in the kingdom? And let's just take a moment to allow God to kind of work in our hearts in this place. So reflect and sit and pray, sing, be a part of this. Let's let God do a work in us for a moment here. So just take time to reflect on your own while we do this. We're going to move into a time of our service where we're going to take communion together. And Hopefully as you came in, you received some of the elements. We have them by the doors if, if you missed it. But communion is such a great time to even reflect on the verses we saw today and just this reality that God knew that we would at times have other gods in his presence. God knew that at times we would give our hearts to idols and even treat him as an idol. He understood that we couldn't perfectly fulfill this law, and that's why he sent Jesus. The prophets spoke about the Messiah who had come to perfectly live the life in the kingdom of God to demonstrate to us, for one, what that looked like, and two, to pay the penalty, the ultimate penalty, for the sins and transgressions and struggles that he knew we would have. So Jesus came for a mission to make us right in his eyes. And so when we take communion together, we are remembering that we fall short and God knew it, and yet his grace and his goodness is everlasting and his compassion for us is amazing. It's super abounding even when sin abounds. And so we begin with the bread and Jesus took the bread on the night when he was celebrating Passover with his disciples and initiated this rite of communion. And he said, when you take this bread, when you eat of it, and this was a bread for them that represented the promise of the Messiah, that represented the promise that God would make things right. He said, when you take that bread, every time you take it, do it in remembrance of me to know that my life, my death, and my resurrection is enough for you. So let's take this together in remembrance of the life of Christ, who paid the price for you and for me. And after the meal, Jesus took the cup, and for us, the cup of juice represents the cup that he took on that night during Passover. It was a cup that represented a new covenant a promise that God would come to his people in the, in the Messiah and make a new covenant that we actually looked at last week. A new covenant that's written on our hearts. It's now the spirit of God who dwells on us. We now are new creations. And that's because of a one-way deal that God made with us. And that's what the juice represents. A new covenant that was confirmed through the blood of Christ. So when we take this, we're remembering that death and resurrection of Jesus did something. It took us out of the old covenant that said, make sure you earn your way up to me. This is what it looks like to a new covenant that says, I've earned it all for you. Now walk in your identity. So when we take this, we remember that Jesus made a way for you and for me to live new lives in this kingdom. So let's take this together. God, we are grateful today. When we examine the commands and what it means to walk in your kingdom, we're grateful that though we fall short, that you don't and your work never does. That you provided a way for us to live in your kingdom in our new identity in Christ. And so we're grateful for your life, your death, your resurrection. And Lord, give us, empower us by your spirit to walk in our new identity in you. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.